Today's Old Testament reading is taken from Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 16, pages 692 to 693 of your Pew Bibles. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans, will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, the first chapter, beginning with verse 18. This is on 965 of your Red Pew Bibles, and it would be great if you would open them and follow along. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy. Abraham gave Isaac uh, father. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob, and all the way down until you get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, verse 16, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And then we pick up with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is Isaiah, which we've just read. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We are now in our fourth part of the Apostles' Creed, and we're trying to see from the scriptures themselves that what Christians have always believed is from the Bible, and therefore we have all the reason to say amen when we 
read and recite the creed together. Now, the Apostles' Creed, which we'll have a chance to say in a few moments, the creed tells the Bible's story, and it tells that story in an outline form. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I said the word story, that the creed is a summary of the Bible's story, right? Now, I suppose we could say, well, the Apostles' Creed is just what Christians believe. We might look at the creed and break it down into a bunch of bullet points or a checklist of things that we should believe, right? But when we stumble upon these words, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, we think, this is kind of weird, right? And we start to think, I wonder what people outside of the church think of all this. They must look at us and think that we Christians come from some other planet or something, or at least we come from the Middle Ages where people believed this kind of weird stuff and where they didn't know basic things about science, like you know how babies are made and stuff. But that's, of course, not how the creed works. As one author says, to take this line of the creed and view it in isolation would be like finding a bicycle chain if you had never seen a bicycle. So imagine someone picks up the bicycle chain and they say, what's this? And you say, well, I'm told that it is a bicycle chain. And they say, a, a what chain? And you say, don't worry about it, it's not important. No, what you would do, of course, is you would say, really, you've never heard of a bicycle? That's pretty strange. But after that, you would say, listen, let me tell you the story of human movement and migration. Let's talk about the invention of the wheel. Let's talk about the scientific and the industrial revolutions. Maybe you would tell them about my hometown of Akron, Ohio, which produced the world's bicycle tires, at least for a while, and kind of put us on the map and made our whole town smell kind of weird, but um, my grandpa says it smelled like money, and that's true. You would probably also want to be honest and talk about Africa and talk about rubber and how colonists exploited Africa's resources and, of course, its people, too. You could tell the story of the bicycle. The bicycle chain that you've just found is connected to a story, and if that's true of a machine, then it's especially true of the things that Christians believe, the good news. This story that Christians think is actually the story, the story of God in Jesus. And so our passage from Matthew and our line in the creed, it tells part of the story. It tells a twist in the plot, a turn in the story. It doesn't tell the whole story, but as we'll see here in a minute, in a way it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings or Narnia or Harry Potter or Star Wars, right? When you see one plot twist and you hear one little bit of dialogue, if you've been following along, then you remember, oh, that's connected to an earlier book or an earlier film that we've read. And isn't that a stunning connection? And so we have these kinds of connections here. 
In what way? Well, let's just pull on two of these story threads briefly this morning. Let's see if we can hear the story that the creed and that Matthew and that ultimately God is telling in this strange plot twist, a conception by the Holy Spirit and a virgin giving birth. And just by way of warning, we'll spend the majority of our time unpacking these stories. We'll ask ourselves, our normal outline, what is the creed asking us to believe? We'll spend most of our time there. And then it will be very easy to see quickly at the end how we live this belief and to ask ourselves, well, do I really believe it? So first, what is this creed and this line in it asking us to believe? I noticed that the headline in my copy of the Bible anyway says that this story is Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. I'm not sure what it says in your copy. That's not original to the Bible. That's just the editors helping us out. Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. That kind of made me laugh a little bit. I guess that's true. That's what this is about. But you could also say, couldn't you? That the headline ought to be, God accepts Joseph as David's son. After all, that's what the angel calls him, right? In verse 20. Now, of course, you could say, that's no big deal. David could pull out his passport and prove that he's David's descendant, that he's from the tribe of Judah. In fact, that his Heimatstadt is Bethlehem. He belongs here. Of course, I'm the son of David. Joseph might even also be able to say, and that means, of course, that I am the inheritor of the promise that God has made to royal King David all those years ago. Now, what promise? Well, God promised to raise up a king from among David's sons and a king who would take the throne and never leave it. A king who would take Israel and make them at last a light unto the nations and make them the glorious kingdom that Israel was meant to be. And actually, if you're Joseph and an angel shows up to you and the first thing out of the angel's mouth is Joseph, son of David, then you would immediately think of these promises to David, your ancestor. There might even be A brief moment after you hear Joseph, son of David, when you think, wait a second, I'm not going to become the promised king, am I? And you get excited and you think, no, please pick someone else. But weirder things have happened in the Bible than that. And the angel says, no, Joseph, relax. It's going to be actually the boy that Mary is pregnant with right now. She didn't cheat on you, Joseph. So marry her, and then raise the boy as you would raise your own son, but don't forget that this boy is God's son. And by the way, you're going to need to call him Jesus, because he is going to save his people from their sins. And so the creed is teaching us to believe that Jesus came into this family of Joseph's, that he came as a fulfillment to a promise made to a long-dead man a thousand years before. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Matthew and the creed alike are saying that God's promise 
to David. And if you look back at the beginning of Matthew 1 here, in that same page in your Bibles, God's promise that went through all of these generations, handed down, in most cases, from a father to a son, to a father to a son, that these promises are coming true. And they're coming true in this boy, Jesus. But, is this episode this twist in the plot, is it really about Joseph? I mean, it is. But isn't it actually, in a way, we might say more about Mary? After all, the creed says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, part of the Christian story all along has included these moments where God shows up and is very countercultural. And in being countercultural, he embraces women in cultures down through the ages that were ruled by men. And he lifts up and exalts these women. Ancient cultures, even ancient Israel, traced family lines most of the time through the fathers and the sons. And this is what we would call begetting. A son isn't, Isaac isn't born to Abraham. Sarah does the giving birth, right? But Abraham, the old timers would say, begat Isaac. This is begetting, fathering sons. Matthew thinks, himself thinks actually, that all of this begetting from father to son is important. We read a bunch of these in Matthew chapter one. Men begetting men. But what's interesting in this genealogy, of course, is that Matthew hints, doesn't he, that there's something even more important in God's unfolding story than just men having sons and more men having sons. It's actually very unusual in a genealogy like this that Matthew would name, as he does, so many women. But if you're a really close reader and a really close follower and fan of the whole story as it unfolds, then it wouldn't be that weird and surprising that in this plot twist, Joseph steps aside and allows God to bring about a new life and a new start in this woman Mary's body and to do it, at least in part, without Joseph. After all, go back to the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter three, long before the promise to David, there was a promise to who? To Eve, the first woman. And what was that promise? Well, as soon as Adam and Eve have rebelled and fallen into sin, here comes the promise. The woman will give birth and the seed of the woman will save the world. And it's kind of amazing that in that context, the father of this world savior isn't mentioned, but the mother is. And I think this is the Holy Spirit, the the best storyteller of all time. This is the Holy Spirit's way of foreshadowing that God will take care of the conceiving and then the Savior will be born to one of these daughters of Eve. In our Old Testament passage that Joyce read for us, Israel is in big trouble. They're stuck in a violent war 
And of course, the soldiers and the politicians are men, and they're going at it, but the people are exhausted from it. And then through the prophet Isaiah, God brings a sign, doesn't he? What's the sign? Okay, there's going to be a virgin, or at least a young woman, and she's going to have a baby boy. And before mom can even teach that boy right and wrong, by the time she's got the boy eating some solid food, these angry men that are fighting and causing all these problems, they're going to be set aside, and I'll do something new. That's the sign. And then fast forward to the New Testament, and Matthew reads Isaiah, and he says, wow, what a connection. This is, this is exactly what has just happened here with Jesus. And in fact, it's not just a young woman, but definitely a virgin, Mary, verse 23. And so by setting aside the begetting of men as fathers to their sons, God is signaling here, isn't he, that something new is happening in the story. God's saying, Joseph, you're important, but step aside for just a second here. And with Joseph, he's saying, step aside, proud Israelites. Step aside, uh, rulers. Let me show you how to bring forth the kind of son that you've always hoped for but never quite had. And so the creed and its story is not really about Joseph or about men in general. It's also not, though, really about Mary so much or women in general. But what's it about? It's about God. And it's about Jesus coming in particular in this amazing way. Yes, Joseph's important. We see Joseph submitting to the Lord's plan, stepping aside until it was time to raise God's son as if it were his own, and it was his own. Yes, Mary's important. We could talk for hours about the self-giving love of Mary. She gives her own body to become the home and the food of God's incarnate son. It's astounding. The angel leaves Joseph, and verse 24, Joseph immediately does what the Lord commands. Mary, in Luke's gospel, says, this is strange, but Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to you. But it's, after all, Jesus and Jesus' humility that we're supposed to celebrate here. Jesus, God's son, is asked to go and to become one of us and to save us even though it will cost him absolutely everything. Jesus is the one that says, I will do your will, Father. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And then, you know, the father might have said something like, all right, son, but... You realize that the plan's a little strange, right? The plan is for you to start out as an embryo in a poor, unmarried teenage girl's womb. Is that cool? (laughs) I'm just imagining the conversation, of course. And Jesus says, it's strange, but anything, anything, to be with the people that I love, to show your love, Father, I'll do anything. Next week, uh, Sam will lead us through the next part of the creed, which takes us to the son 
giving up his life all the way unto death and the grave. But it's important to realize that even before that happens, the son has to live his life. And he lives his life in a lifelong giving up for his God and Father and for the broken world that he so loved. And he's doing this in the way, and as a human, he's doing it in the way that humans since Adam and Eve were supposed to live, but never quite did. And so, born of this woman, but conceived by the power of God, and as God and man, here comes our Lord Jesus. So that's part of what it means when we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. How should we live this? I hope that you have some ideas already, just looking at not only Joseph and Mary, but Jesus himself. Matthew and the Creed, and really the whole Bible is calling us to live after the pattern, not just of Mary and Joseph, but of Jesus too. If Joseph, after all, sets aside his agenda, if he even sets aside his very natural desire for sexual intimacy with his wife during their honeymoon years, or at least honeymoon months, so that he can welcome and raise a son conceived by another father, God the Father, if, if Mary sets her own body apart for God's purposes and gives her God worship by nursing and feeding and raising this boy, and if both of these parents are simply opening up their lives to their God out of a response to God's opening up of his life to them for the sake of all the nations of the world, and if the central story in the Bible, as well as in the Creed, is not even about Joseph or about Mary, but about the humility of God in Jesus Christ, who came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up for many, then it should be obvious how we have to live our lives, right? How in the world, after hearing of this, can you and I claim to believe this stuff and not move aside and not offer our lives and even our very bodies, not to mention our possessions and our status and our hopes and our dreams to our Savior who has been so self-giving and self-emptying as he has been. How can we not say with Mary and Joseph, with the ancient Christians who first bet their lives on the story of this creed, how can we not say, look, Lord, your desires for my life are my desires. Take my life, do with it whatever you want, and it will be my joy. And the reality is, they might not know what's going on in your heart and soul, but the people around you can tell. They can tell if you're living your life for yourself or if you are living in response to a calling that is, after all, much, much bigger than you are. And friends, the only call that is big enough and true enough and wonderful enough for you to actually give your whole self to 
is the same call that Joseph and Mary answered here. And that is the call of God to follow his son, no matter what it might cost you. People can tell when you're following Jesus. They can tell when you're following this one who was so powerful that he entered the world through a miracle, but so humble that he picked a time and a place and a family like the one he did. Jesus laid his life down 10,000 times or more in love before he ever got to Calvary where he laid it up once and for all. He trusted that as he laid his life down day after day and moment after moment in service of other people, that his God and Father would take up his life again and would make it abundant and joyful and deeply impactful. And so that means to live this truth, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. To live this truth is to live a life that is humbly given over to God and therefore a life that is magnificently energized by God in the loving service of your friends, your family, your colleagues, your neighbors, and even your enemies. And so, are you living this plot twist in the middle of our creed? Are you living Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and following? Are you living the story? John Bunyan the author of, I learned yesterday, the very first English novel, Pilgrim's Progress, the sixth best-selling book of all time in any language. John Bunyan said, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. And so the question is, are you living today? What about tomorrow and the day after that? So what's the creed call us to believe? That a great plot twist has happened in these great stories that are ancient but so relevant. How do you live it? You imitate Mary and Joseph and the way that they imitate the Lord Jesus himself. And then last the question, do you believe it? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Because it's after all here in this story that Jesus says, I am coming as Emmanuel to be with you. I'm coming to save you. You need saved. And the world that you live in needs it as well. And so will you welcome me? And having welcomed me, will you Work alongside me tirelessly. Will you yield to me? Will it be your joy now to pave the way for me to come into the lives through you of other people, of your neighbors, even if it's hard work? Are you ready to say to the whole story and to this magnificent twist in the plot, Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? Are you? Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the mystery bound up in the words that we believe. We thank you that all of the hopes of all the nations have come true finally in Jesus. 
We thank you for the way that Mary and Joseph show us the great example as they keep their eyes on you. May we live self-givingly and may we in our self-giving always and everywhere be energized only by your self-giving love in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe, so help our unbelief and help us to live it all the days of our lives and then for eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.